As we begin this morning, I'd like to read a few verses from the end of the 27th Psalm. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. Because of my foes, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Father, that's one of the hardest things we have to do. Patience is not something that most of us have a great deal of. Father, we want you to answer prayer yesterday. And yet, Father, we know that your timetable is the best timetable, that it is in obedience that we pray, and that's what you ask us to do. And so, Father, we come before you this morning thanking you and just trusting you that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, here and now, in our day and age. We know we do in so many ways, and yet there are so many hurting people, Father, even in this room today, those that need a special touch from your hand. Oh God, I pray that you will grant it. Lord, I know that it is your word which is truth. It is your word which strengthens our heart, which challenges our heart, which guides our path. And I ask, Lord, that we will be attentive to the word, that we will not ignore it, but allow it to be uh, that which fulfills our, our every need. Oh Lord, we pray that you will bless our study this morning. And I pray for the men and women here that you will minister to each one. And Father, again, we would just join our hearts together as we have been focusing our prayer, particularly this past week, on the need of a full-time man of God uh, to lead this church, this congregation. Oh, Father, that you will bless the committee that has worked so hard and give them strength and wisdom. And Father, I pray that you will raise up that one and bring him soon, that we might have the leadership that is needed. Someone, Lord, who will rightly divide the Word of God, a man who will be an expositor of the Word and, and a man of prayer and a family of prayer. Lord, we're just grateful that we can trust in you because you're the good shepherd and you give us good shepherds. We're thankful for the men and women who are here leading us now and pray for your blessing on them as this has been a strain uh, for them to go through this long period of time. Lord, we just commit this day to you and this hour in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, and I'd like to read the first half of the chapter. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commended uh, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following sheep, 
that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son, sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This, of course, is one of the key passages of the Old Testament. This event, this scenario that we're looking at here, occurred undoubtedly many years after the events which had transpired recorded in the sixth chapter and before. David was empowered by the Lord to bring a measure of peace. Oh, it wasn't ultimate peace yet, but, but it was a measure of peace and some security to Israel. And obviously along the way, he had acquired the necessary wealth in order for him to build himself a royal palace. House of Cedar is the word mentioned there. And House of Cedar, we might think House of Cedar, well, probably a little a log cabin someplace or other. I don't think so. House of Cedar is a euphemism for a large and beautiful palace. Cedar, at that particular day and age, cedar was a very highly prized wood. It came from the trees that grew, and a few still grow today, in the mountains of Lebanon. There are a couple of parallel mountain ranges that run through here. You have the coast, then you have a mountain range, then you have the Bekaa Valley, and you have another mountain range here. And uh, on these mountains, particularly the more western mountains, grow many, many different forms of uh, coniferous trees. But the principal trees that grew in great groves were the cedar trees. Oh, there were pines and others, but the ones that were of greatest significance were the cedars which grew there. If you go today to Lebanon, you'll find there are a few patches, just a few patches with a few hundred trees surviving today. And of course, they're a national park kind of protected area because these are the famous cedars of Lebanon. They're on the national flag of Lebanon. That's how important these cedars have been historically to this area. The cedar was valued for its rarity. It was valued for its fragrance. And it's valued for the fact that the cedar that they used was clear wood. It was warm. It was reddish in color. It was just beautiful wood that was used. And was considered, the cedar tree was considered the monarch of the forest. And later on we'll be talking about a parable, not you know, later in, in, in the book of Kings, in which that is... Um, that is brought out. And generally the wood was reserved for temples and palaces. This wasn't something you could go down to Home Depot and get some cedar and slap it up for your fence, you know. This isn't that kind of cedar. 
Cedar was one of the leading exports that came out of the great Phoenician ports. Along the coast here, you have uh, Ugaret in the north, you have Arvad, you have Gibal, you have what is today Beirut, you have Sidon, you have Tyre, you have Akko, you have Dor. Uh, all of these cities were major ports uh, on the Phoenician coast. We'll be talking a little bit about Phoenicia uh, later on, uh, not today, but uh, soon, uh, because the Phoenicians were a, um, a very important people of the, of the ancient world, and they're just now kind of learning a little bit more about them because they never really had a good, solid uh, uh, political, uniform p uh, political leadership. They were kind of like a bunch of city-states that operated almost independent from each other. And so out of these ports, the most valuable product that was being exported was the cedar. And what was interesting is that Egypt was one of the principal importers of this cedar because the Egyptians highly prized the cedar because it was used uh, to, to line their palaces and they particularly liked it to use to line the coffins of the wealthy. You know, it smells good. It has a real nice fragrance to it. And the Egyptians were really into mummifying with all these fragrances. And, and so it was imported in large quantities into uh, Egypt. Well, it's interesting on National Geographic Mysteries of the Deep that Robert Ballard, you know, found the Titanic. Several of the uh, recent presentations have been uh, devoted to uncovering Phoenician vessels traveling between Tyre and Sidon on the Egyptian coast there. 2,500 to 3,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, very <coughs> fascinating. And they, they recently found one off the Turkish coast, right? right? And from its cargo, they were able to determine a lot of the, what was balanced in trade there. Wood, of course, would deteriorate pretty much, I would think. <coughs> the, uh, the potter. He built his empire. But he, at this point, he was just sitting there one day, and he became acutely aware of the fact, here I am, dwelling in this wonderful palace, and God's Ark is still stuck in a tent over there in the corner of the town. It just seemed so incongruous to him that he decided that uh, he was going to have to, to change that. And he, into his heart came the desire to build a great temple to the Lord. One of David's chief counselors, and by the way, this, this passage illustrates how important it is, no matter who we are, what position of authority we may have, that we have good counselors. Because you know you can get a vision and decide this is what I'm going to do and it's not at all what God wants you to do. And that becomes quite clear here. One of his chief counselors and his spiritual conscience in effect was the prophet Nathan. Nathan had a great name. Nathan means gift. And truly, uh, if anybody was a gift to David, Nathan was a gift to David. He just kind of pops up here without introduction and without lineage being given of him. But he obviously is a man who will play a very key role because not only will he play a key role in this question of building the temple, but he also plays a very key role when David gets himself into deep, deep trouble in the Uriah Bathsheba episode and then later on when it comes to whether or not Solomon is actually going to succeed him to the throne or not. Uh, Nathan also plays a major role at that point. So here was a man that God had raised up to stand alongside David and help him through those critical times when he needed guidance from God directly. Did Nathan go through Samuel's school of the prophets? Well, maybe. We, we don't know. It doesn't. We're not told, but it's very likely. 
One of the things that we do discover, however, about Nathan was that he was apparently a chaplain to David, but he also was a chronicler. And I'll just read the verse to you from the, we've read it before, 29th chapter of the 29th, 29th verse of the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles. Now the acts of David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and the chronicles of Gad the seer. So Nathan was one of those who, living through David's entire reign, served as one of his chroniclers, which those chronicles were then compiled to produce the book of Chronicles. When David first expressed to, to Nathan his desire to build this temple for the Lord, Nathan said, good idea, David. I think you ought to do it. Let's move ahead with this project. I, I think the Lord would want you to do this. And he pronounced his blessing upon David in this project. But Nathan becomes now a real powerful example to us as well, uh, how one should deal with uh, a situation when um, you've spoken, not necessarily out of turn, but without really finding out the mind of the Lord first. The next few verses tell us clearly that even a godly man, such as Nathan the prophet, can believe that he knows what God's will is when he really doesn't know what God's will is. And I think what it does, it helps us to understand that you and I cannot know God's will unless God reveals it to us. Now, He's generally going to reveal it to us through His Word. That's the usual way by which He reveals His, His will to us. But we can't just walk out in broad daylight and, some, and just lay a claim, oh, God is, wants me to do this, without finding out the mind of the Lord. Uh, in this matter. And of course, Jesus gave us powerful examples, didn't he? He went up into the mountains and prayed, and, and he fasted and he prayed. And uh, through these methods, he, he had direct leading of the Spirit of the Lord. And so we find Nathan here, although he had made this pronouncement, oh yes, David, I, I think God is with you. I think you ought to go ahead and do this. The blessing of the Lord is on you. When God tells him, no, I don't want David to build that, Nathan doesn't hem and haw and hedge and say, well, you know, David, even prophets can make mistakes. Uh, you know, he just flat out says, David, no, this is what the Lord has said. He doesn't want you to build the temple. A man who was not afraid to admit when he was wrong and to correct it. How that is so different from the day and age in which we live. God just spoke to Nathan in a night vision. We're told in, in verses 4 and verse 17. And the Lord in this vision implies to Nathan, through, to David, of course, through Nathan, that it has not been his plan to have his people up to that moment in time build him a temple. He didn't ask his people to build him a temple because they were a nomadic people. They're moving here and there. They're, they're, they're not settled in any particular place. They didn't even have, their, their whole state was nebulous. There was no capital. There was no organized government. God would raise up a shofar to judge, to lead them from time to time. And, and so to build a temple in a particular place would be inappropriate up to that, at least to that moment in time. And so that, uh, God had never asked his people to build him a temple. A tabernacle would suffice. A tent that could be torn down and put somewhere else and re-erected and torn down and moved somewhere else and re-erected, which of course we saw throughout the whole wilderness wandering. Before a temple could be built, God had to build national unity. Had to bring this people together cohesively. Make a nation out of them. 
get them to stop thinking of themselves as people of Manasseh and people of Ephraim and people of Judah, but to think of themselves as the nation of Israel, as a unified people. This is one of the biggest issues that not only did Israel face at this time, but nations have faced all through time because most of us, if you trace your lineage back far enough, you will find you lived in a tribal civilization. For example, the Germans. The Germans were a bunch of wild and woolly tribes that lived in the forests of Germany at the time of the height of the Roman Empire. And, and we know this from the writings that have come down to us, describing Tacitus in particular, the great first century Roman writer, gives us the best description that exists from ancient times of what the Germans like. He called the book Germania. And, and, he, and he talks about what the Germans were like. And so it, wherever you go in the world, and of course much of the world today is still tribal, and that's one of the big issues in Afghanistan. They really don't have a national cohesion. And, and so it was for, for Israel at this particular time. And in order for this unity to come about, God needed to raise up a godly spiritual man. Now it's possible to be spiritual without being godly spiritual because we're all spiritual to some extent. And there's an awful lot of people out here today chasing all kinds of spirits. But a godly spiritual man, someone who knew the word of God and obeyed Yahweh the Lord of Israel, somebody who was moral, somebody who had the strength of political leadership. In order to provide national security, to, to bring cohesion, to bring security, to bring a time of peace before a permanent center for the worship of God could be established. And that's what David's role was to be. David was to be the man who made the preparations. David was God's instrument in bringing unity to the nation, to, pretty, to establishing a national center for the nation. You remember the tabernacle was placed in various places, but the temple was to be in Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem still belonged to the Jebusites until David came along. And so that was no place to build a, uh, obviously to build a temple or even to put up the tabernacle. And so when David finally comes around, uh, God's role is raising David to the kingship and this is made incontrovertible as you study through the Word of God, uh, particularly in, in verses 8 and 9 of this passage. Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, I took you from the pasture from following sheep. Well, you know, it wasn't as lowly in those days to be a shepherd as it is today. Today, shepherding is one of the lowliest of all occupations in the world. But it still wasn't what you would consider a high-ranking occupation even in in ancient Israel. Uh, that you should be ruler over my people. I mean, you know, that's a real rags to riches. That's a Horatio Alger story, if there ever was one, you know, to go from shepherd to king. That was a huge leap. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make your name great like the names of the great men of the world of that time. Huh. That's quite a promise. And this is further highlighted in uh, Psalm 78, the end of Psalm 78, we read these words. Verse 70, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. David, of course, as we have already noticed, is a very powerful example of someone who used the concepts of shepherding sheep to shepherding people. And really, the difference isn't all that great. 
when you think about it. Sheep are noted for being dumb, and most of us are pretty dumb most of the time, especially when it comes to living as we ought to live and thinking as we ought to think and being obedient to what we know to be true. Most of the problems we have in our lives are the result of our own disobedience. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we read that God emphatically made it clear, David, you will not build this temple. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you get the feeling that David isn't supposed to build the temple, but God doesn't flat out say, thou shalt not. And he says, are you the one to build it? I don't think so, is the implication there. But the basic reason is not clear, clearly stated there in 2 Samuel. Why should David not build the temple? I mean, after all, he's got the wealth, he's got the power, he's got the desire. Why shouldn't he? He's, he's, he's you know, a man after God's own heart. As you read through the history of, of the kings that followed in the, in the divided kingdom, they were always, the, the ones that did well were always compared to David. Did he do well as David had done or, or did he not? You know, they say, and this man served the Lord as David his father had done, or this man served the Lord, but not as David his father had done, you know, kind of thing. So, so why should not David be allowed to build a temple? The scripture is quite clear because David was a man of war, a man who had shed blood. And God wanted someone who was a man of peace uh, to build his, his temple. In, second, in 1 Chronicles 28, we read this. These are David's words. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. And then when it came to transferring this mantle to, uh, to Solomon, David speaks in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, and he speaks these words. He says, then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his day. And of course, Solomon's name basically means God is his peace. God was not condemning David. God was not saying to David, you shed blood, therefore you can't build a temple to me because God is the one who had ordered him to shed the blood. God is the one who gave him the victory. God is the one who, who, who gave him the direction in all of this. In fact, you remember when Abigail, when, when David had the encounter with Nabal and, and Abigail came to explain why Nabal was such a fool. And when Abigail spoke before David, she said to them, him, you are fighting the Lord's battles. I don't know that she knew that was prophetic, but that is true. It was a prophetic statement that she was making there concerning the man who would become her husband. And this bloodshed disqualified him from being the man that God would choose to build his temple. That's interesting, you know, when you think about it, because David was more obedient than Solomon. David was a man after God's own heart, and Solomon, you know, uh, he was pretty good at first, and then he kind of got off track. 
But God wanted a man who would rule during a time of peace, who would be a man of peace to build the temple of the God of peace. Now think about the contrast here. In the world of which we are speaking and in the following millennia, many temples would be raised in many parts of the world and many of those temples would be dedicated to war gods. Baal of the Canaanites, one of his activities was as a war god. If you go to the world of the Greeks and the world of the Romans, they had Mars as the god of war. In fact, that's why we have the symbol for male, you know, is the Mars spear. And the symbol for the female is the Venus mirror, you know, always looking at herself because she was so beautiful. And, and Mars, you know, the god of war. And Athena, who was the, the patron goddess of the city of Athens, in fact, when they built the Parthenon and, and established all that glorious all those glorious temples on top of the Acropolis, there was this huge statue of Athena standing there with a, with a spear in her hand and this helmet on her head which was made of bronze and they said you could see the sun gleaming off that helmet way out to sea off the coast of Athens. God did not want to be seen as a god of war or as thought of as a god of war. Oh yes, God from time to time ordered his people to go to war and he led them in battle. But he was not a god of war. He is a God of peace. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, Jesus would say. And so Yahweh, God of peace, his kingdom was to be a kingdom of peace, and his Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. Unfortunately, the world does not know that peace yet, but you and I can know that peace personally inside our hearts. And that peace can, can it's like, You've all heard the story of the uh, contest for portraying the, the most peaceful scene possible, the most tranquil scene, and the winning one was a great storm was bright, you know, and the whole painting was about a storm. But here in the nook in the rock of a cliff was a bird with his little flock, I mean his little uh, birdlets in this, uh, <laughs> in this little nest all safe in the wall of the cliff while the storm was raging about. And that's the way it is for us. The storms are raging, but we can know the peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding. And he wanted his temple to be a place of peace and seen as a place of peace where we can go, where the Israelites could go and experience true peace. The very bloodshed, however, that disqualified David from being able to build the temple was the bloodshed that was necessary in order to bring the peace and security that Solomon would need to be the man of peace that he was to be. So doesn't it all dovetail and fit, right? God is not a, a maker of one single mold and we all fit the mold. He makes a lot of molds. Some of us are moldier than others, I know, but <laughs> we all shape differently and we all have a different role to play. And all of the roles are important. All of the roles are important. And so David's role was to make the peace and Solomon's role was to enjoy the peace and to build the temple as a result. David had an empire to build, which is what we're looking at here on the map, roughly, as best as can be told. David had an empire. I mean, here's, here's, here's Saul's kingdom, this area right in here. I mean, David would expand south, clear into the northern Sinai. He would drive the empire north until it reached the Euphrates River at one point in time. 
And, and so the multiplication was, was tremendous here. And you'll notice Damascus was in the ancient kingdom of, of David and Solomon. Damascus. Uh, it's too bad it isn't today, you know. I mean, it solved a few problems here and there. The only places uh, in this region that were not really locked in as part of David's empire were Phoenicia, the, 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 the individual city-states, which were allied to David. Tyre here would provide a lot of the materials that would be used by Solomon to, to build the temple. And then the Philistines, uh, David just simply surrounded them like um, the U.S. Marines did against the Japanese in World War II, hop around the islands and isolate them and just leave them rot. So Philistia was kind of surrounded and just left to rot there along the coast. And with this huge empire, David was secure from his enemies. Most of these people out here are all Gentiles that are under the thumb of David. They're not Jews. They're not Hebrews. But they had their time. They had their opportunity to hear the word of truth. Now this is, long, by the way, this is long before there ever was a Muhammad, right? I mean, Muhammad didn't live until the 6th century AD, you know? So there was no Mohammedanism, no Muslim faith. That's a very young religion. And, and so these people were all pagans of various kinds, worshiping various deities. And they were given the opportunity to hear the truth and to know the God of Israel. The time for peace thus was not yet during David's reign. He had this empire to build. Solomon would profit from this peace, and as I said, his name implies that. His name means peaceful. His main name means God is my peace. God being implied, because the name God is not actually in uh, the word Solomon. But this gave Solomon the opportunity to focus all of his attention and all of his wealth on the construction of the temple. Let me read on in 2 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles verse 9. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, and his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days, and he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Could any father hear anything more wonderful from the mouth of God than that? Your son, I will be his father, and I will give him peace, and he will establish a kingdom, and he will build me a temple. <laughs> what a wonderful promise this was. In our passage back in 2 Samuel, in verses 12 to 16, we have what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant, which is what makes this passage of Scripture so important for us. In in verse 12, God says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will, become, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, notice it doesn't say if he commits iniquity. It says when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So that 
16th verse is a summary of what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. It was a unilateral covenant that came down from God to David. Because you have followed me, I am proclaiming that your throne will be an eternal throne and your kingdom will last forever. It had to be thrilling for David to hear that. I mean, it almost gives you goosebumps reading it. Imagine if you were the man to whom it was spoken by God through his prophet. And your son is not going to lose the kingdom as Saul lost the kingdom. But when he sins, I'm going to correct him with a rod of men. The rod of men. Doesn't sound too thrilling. But God says, I will maintain my loving kindness for him. I will maintain my loving kindness. God, when he disciplines us, does not cease loving us. God's love remains. In fact, the only reason he does discipline us, as we well know from uh, the New Testament, is because he loves us. We all know Solomon started out well. And he prays one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture, which we'll get to eventually when they dedicate the temple. But he would wander off into disobedience because he directly violated the word that God had proclaimed in Deuteronomy that the king shall not multiply horses, wives, wealth, or any of those things unto himself, particularly wives. And Solomon, of course, would slightly disobey that. You know, he end up with a thousand wives and concubines. How would God discipline Solomon? Well, let me read that, and I guess we'll... I'll stop with that. In 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded so the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." Kind of the funnel effect. God keeps whittling it down and whittling it down and whittling it down until all you have is one tribe. And that tribe has given its name to the people who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to this day. We call them Jews from Judah, the, the tribe that would be the one that David's descendants would continue to control and would control Jerusalem and of course, obviously the point I'm coming to, but won't have time to get to today, is that, that the eternality, the eternality of the throne of David would be in, of course, Messiah, who was born of the line and lineage of David. And I mean, who could ever think this up? Anybody who thinks that people just sat down and thought this up and wrote it down like Shakespeare wrote a play or something, hasn't got a clue because obviously these things are just not anything would ever come into anybody's mind as to how God would work in such ways that are so opposite our logic and the way we think. Because of course he is perfect and our logic is badly flawed and faulty.
So um, next Sunday we'll pick up there and uh, look at how this is, is worked out in, in Messiah.